welcome to Disputes and Perspective. I'm Doug Cherry, a partner in the Disputes team at Reed Smith. This podcast series will discuss disputes-related trends, hot topics and developments occurring in the global legal landscape, and hopefully provide you with some helpful insights and practical tips. If you have any questions about any of the episodes, please feel free to contact our speakers. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Disputes in Perspective. Today we'll be discussing some fairly critical and recent changes in the UAE foreign ownership laws. Uh, My name is Wasim Kokar, part of the Disputes team based in Dubai, and I'm joined by my colleague Adela Muse, who is part of our corporate team in Dubai. The corporate landscape in the UAE has been defined literally for decades by compulsory requirements for MRRT shareholding in any foreign-owned business. Practically, that means that if you were to own a limited liability company in the UAE, it would have to be 51% owned by either an MRRT local or a company that is 100% owned by MRRTs. This is separate from, of course, the free zone structures, which do allow 100% foreign ownership, but are limited in what they can do in the mainland um, in the UAE. The result of this is that the recent changes have now introduced the concept of 100% local ownership mainland in the UAE. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today uh, with a special focus on disputes as well in the second half of this podcast. So Adela is going to first outline the recent changes, then I'll discuss the context within disputes and how they could arise. Over to you, Adela. So thank you, Wasim. At the end of 2020, the UAE government released an amendment to the existing commercial companies law, providing for the removal or relaxation of a number of mandatory requirements relating to the participation of UAE nationals in the ownership and operation of UAE onshore companies. The changes do not affect free zone companies directly as such requirements did not apply to them. The main changes relate to the following. First, companies that do not carry on strategic impact activities, as that term is defined by the government, no longer need to be at least 51% owned by a UAE national or a company fully owned by UAE nationals. Secondly, branches of foreign companies no longer need a UA national to serve as its local or national service agent. And thirdly, joint stock companies, boards of directors, no longer need to be made up of a majority of UA nationals or be chaired by an Emirati director. Of the three changes mentioned above, the most high profile is, of course, the removal of the 51 UAE national ownership requirement applicable private companies, with the notable exception of those companies that carry on activities deemed to be of strategic impact. The change came into effect on the 1st of June 2021, and before that date, each emirate was mandated to uh, issue its own strategic impact activities list. The emirates of Abu Dhabi and Dubai have published their own respective lists in May, And they both took, uh, interestingly, um, a different strategic approach. Both Emirates issued a positive list of activities which are opened for 100% foreign ownership. 
on, in addition to that, Dubai also issued a list of what it deems to be a strategic impact activities list, i.e., let's say, a negative list. In principle, the regular, uh, regulatory authorities of both Emirates may consider additional activities for enhanced foreign ownership on a case-by-case -case basis, and uh, the above-mentioned list may be updated from time to time. As far as Dubai is concerned, our expectation is that those activities that are on the on a negative list, let's say, will not be subject to consideration, but anything else might be. Looking at the two lists, where the two Emirates uh, diverge in strategy is the treatment of trading activities. While Dubai has made a wide range of trading activities available for full ownership, um, foreign ownership, Abu Dhabi has not included any trading activities on its permitted list. This difference is likely to reflect the economic strategy of each Emirate. Abu Dhabi is looking to attract businesses in sectors such as technology and manufacturing, while Dubai is looking to encourage a wider breadth of foreign investment, including in the trading sector. And this is really in line with Dubai's long-standing focus on maintaining and consolidating its status as regional and global trading hub. Interestingly, and against expectation, so far no conditions have attached to foreign investors' full ownership in the UA companies. So to the extent that ownership is permitted based on the, the nature of the activity of the company, there are no enhanced capital requirements or any other conditions that are attached to foreign ownership. And this is a departure from the old uh, foreign direct investment law that uh, had been into place before this new development uh, occurred. Well, what does this all mean? New in incoming investors may set up UA companies without engaging with local sponsors. This is bound to make setting up long-term presences in the UE a lot more appealing to foreign investors and foreign uh, businesses. As one of the main country risk factors that foreign investors have been grappling with in the past has largely disappeared. On the other side, foreign investors already owning shares in existing local companies whose activities are open to 100% uh, foreign ownership can now look into procuring the exit of their local silent or nominee UA shareholders, generally referred to as sponsors in the region. And the law hasn't provided for a blanket way of removing partners. And in fact, not all qualifying companies will take advantage of this change. Of course, those actual JVs where the local partner or partners are real investors in the business uh, with a real uh, beneficial interest and com commercial contribution to the business will likely stay as they are or at most adjust registered shareholder ownerships to reflect the actual commercial agreement between the partners when, where that is not currently the case. So, for example, if a JV has been set up by a foreign owner, a foreign investor that holds 60% of the beneficial ownership of that business with the local partner owning 40% of that business. Before this change in the law occurred, the, basically the parties had to, to adjust their arrangements so that the registered ownership of the two partners was 51-49 and perhaps the profit distribution was different. So what we expect that this kind of companies will do 
they will either issue new shares or transfer shares in such a way that the, the actual registered shareholding is uh, adjusted to reflect the real ownership of the company. Now, this is probably going to be a matter of commercial negotiation and it will be fairly smooth sailing. What would be interesting is how foreign investors in companies with silent partners or nominees will manage the existing local partners, where the latter did not bring anything commercial or financial to the business. It is likely that some local sponsors will agree to exit on amicable terms based on some sort of agreed exit compensation payment, and we have seen uh, that being the case already, but agreement will not always be easily reached, if at all. And in that kind of situation, the question will be, what will the foreign investor be able to do? Will they be able to invoke the, the side arrangements, private arrangements that they would have reached and signed with the, the nominee, silent sponsor at the time that the company was incorporated? Will the foreign owner somehow force a winding up of the company and set up a wholly owned company down the road with the same activities. These are all still open questions, and Wasim will uh, be discussing some of these uh, issues in more detail. Wasim? Thank you so much, Adela. And there's some really interesting points that Adela has raised there. And in the context of, of disputes, it's, it's actually really important to understand what we're talking about here. So as Adela mentioned, where there is a genuine joint venture arrangement and both parties, regardless of the prescriptive requirements on ownership, are both contributing um, legally as well as commercially in the same way, then it's likely to be business as usual. At the other end, you've got a situation where in order to perhaps soften or mitigate the impact of a compulsory 51% ownership requirement, individuals and companies and business partners have entered into these so-called side arrangements which essentially balance out the beneficial ownership and benefits from the joint venture away from the 51-49% legal ownership that's been prescribed by the law. And this is what Adela was talking about when she mentioned uh, merely nominee arrangements. Now, we have to be a little bit careful here because these nominee arrangements were somewhat clamped down upon in recent times by the introduction of, of what is commonly termed as anti-fronting legislation, which made it subject to penalties um, where mere nominee arrangements were put in place for the, for the sole purpose of simply getting around the 41, 49, 51% ownership requirement. So we have to envisage a scenario where such an arrangement was put in place and the foreign shareholder is now looking to uh, rationalize their ownership of the business by removing the 51% shareholder who was performing more of a nominee function than any sort of real legal function. If we suspend for the moment that that the existence of such arrangement was likely to offend the anti-fronting legislation and just focus on uh, such rationalization. It's likely that um, the 51% shareholder, or it's possible, 
uh, may resist the the mere removal of him or herself um, as the 51% shareholder. At the end of the day, they have provided a, a valid role in the company, even if it was not, from a commercial point of view, substantive. And we can see how polarized views can rapidly emerge here where uh, the foreign shareholder may have an entirely different view and say that, well, we only really set up this business with you as a 51% shareholder in order to comply with the regulations at the time. And that is where we are likely to see most disputes coming about. Now, each case is going to be heavily nuanced on a number of factors, including what the constitution of the company says in the UAE, that's known as the Memorandum of Association, is the main constitutive document of a limited liability company, but also how these peripheral or collateral agreements are drafted as well. And these are the agreements where you would typically find a variation in ownership of things such as intellectual property or a variation in how profits are split or some other type of joint venture agreement style of arrangement. So careful consideration would have to be um, given to how those equity documents have in fact been drafted and the extent to which they are enforceable. Key points to consider therefore are also that these types of disputes will fall under the jurisdiction of the local courts in most cases. That means local litigation under the local courts rather than uh, what you would see in some other disputes where a foreign jurisdiction clause or even a foreign uh, dispute resolution clause has been inserted. That's not to say that some of these side agreements or collateral agreements won't have foreign governing law clauses in them, but the enforceability of those choice of law clauses will be under some degree of scrutiny um, because at being an LLC, a limited liability company within the jurisdiction, puts it firmly within the jurisdiction of the UAE. Therefore, it will be critical to understand how these agreements work and also what the original intention was. In cases where settlements are reached, there will clearly be a discussion around what constitutes fair and reasonable value for one shareholder to give up their equity to another. And again, this is not a simple question to answer and may in fact involve the introduction of experts and valuation people in order to assess what that could be. If a full dispute arises nonetheless, there will also be significant costs associated with judgments, perhaps even appeals, and the entire process through the courts. Our view is that this is an interesting area and one to watch. Certain categories of shareholder are more likely to enter into this dispute space than others, especially where an amicable settlement cannot be reached. In terms of key takeaways from this Disputes in Perspective podcast, one of the keys is to assess the individual roles and key documents that are present in the relationship between the 51% local shareholder and the foreign 49% shareholder. Where does the power and the management of the company actually rest? And how have profits also been split between the two parties? It's also important to understand the culture and the full intention behind the business in the first place. Adela, did you want to put in a key takeaway? Yes. So 
from a corporate perspective, I think that each foreign investor that has an investment in in a company in the UA at the moment will have to at some point during the year probably until they're by the time their license comes up for, for the annual renewal probably have to conduct a, a legal analysis of and a commercial analysis of whether this development applies to them at all and if it does whether they should take any action and this is not going to be a simple simple issue there are likely to be a lot of consideration to, to be taken into account it really will depend on on a lot of, a lot of factors as to how how the the foreign investor will decide to go go ahead just a number of things that are likely to be considered well first of all the deal breaker is is 100% foreign ownership permitted for the company of the shareholder of the foreign investor is the activity that the company undertakes open for 100% foreign ownership obviously if it's not then it's business as usual nothing will change if however that is the case the next question is obviously what kind of relationship does the foreign owner have with the local partner are we talking about a sponsorship, silent sponsorship arrangement? Or are we talking about the true JV? If we're talking about a true joint venture with partners bringing in their own capital, their own uh, commercial contribution, then probably, as mentioned earlier, the thing to consider will be, does there have to be a, an adjustment of registered ownership? Um, at this point to reflect the actual commercial understanding in terms of beneficial and legal ownership between the, uh, the partners. And this will most likely be a welcome action for both shareholders who will then have um, be able to focus on, uh, on the actual operations of the company going forward once their structure has been regularized. If the local partner is, as we said, a sponsor, then there are other things to consider. First of all, as, as Wasim was mentioning earlier, the documents, any arrangement that has been documented, that's been entered into with that sponsor, the contribution, if any, that that sponsor brings to, to the company. Some of these local sponsors are quite well placed for uh, carrying out business development activities for the company and their contribution is not only to, to act as a nominee but goes beyond that and they do provide useful, profitable services to the company. In that case, it's a commercial decision whether that participation of the local sponsor warrants that they maintain a certain shareholding in the company turning the company more into a more of a proper proper JV arrangement, let's say. Or is the is the contribution of the local shareholder uh, more in the terms of service provision in each case the existing uh, sponsorship arrangement could be replaced with a, a service provision arrangement. All of this will have to be obviously considered and then strategized upon and then presented to the local partner. Having a situation where the local partner can be engaged in the future in the, in the business of the company, for example, by engaging in a, a new 
service provision agreement with them may make those discussions easier as it's more likely that a sponsor will be uh, more keen to to relinquish an existing sponsorship arrangement if there is a commercial benefit for them um, thereafter. Other factors that might be, well, would need to be considered, and Wasim has mentioned already, any risk relating to anti-fronting legislation, is the actual change sensible financially? We, we had a, a client recently that was going through this process, and they were con considering quite uh, quite rightly is the fact is the regularization of the of shareholding at this point in time make sense commercially or should they just push it for further down the line this, these are things that that uh, companies will consider in, in the context of their own operations their own financial uh, status at the moment of course there will be other other considerations to take place and only uh, time will tell I'm sure there will be all sorts of scenarios that arise in practice and it's uh, it's a very interesting uh, space to watch uh, going forward to see how how this development will actually be implemented in practice and what uh, what kind of issues will arise in in the process and that's it for me thank you for joining this episode of disputes in perspective if you do have any questions please do feel free to reach out to either adela or myself and we look forward to seeing you at the next podcast. Disputes in Perspective is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's litigation and dispute resolution practice, please email disputesinperspective at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reedsmith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.